0: Hey, everyone. The It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode.
1: You know, this publication is paying me this much. Am I being exploited? Am I being underpaid? Are they paying other people more? You know, I think just having other people who are in the fight with you is a really, honestly, life-changing possibility.
0: There are many advantages to working as a freelancer. You can set your own hours, you don't have to go into the office, and you can choose who you work for. But what do you do when an editor kills a story you've written or won't pay you what you're owed? Who's got your back? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Abigail Higgins is the co-chair of the Freelance Solidarity Project, which is the digital media division of the National Writers' Union. In that role, she works to improve the working conditions of freelance journalists. She's also a member of the IWW Freelance Journalism Union. Abigail, welcome to It's All Journalism.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael.
0: So you know, this is great. I was just listening to something, and they were talking about the writer strike in Hollywood. So I know that you know, creative people in many aspects are part of unions or, or members of unions, and. It's an area that a lot of people, and certainly freelancers, are probably wondering, oh, I can unionize? Uh, So I thought this was a good opportunity to talk to somebody from your organization. So before we get going and talking about the union, tell me a little bit about yourself. You've had a really kind of interesting career. What got you interested in journalism at the beginning?
1: I've always wanted to be a journalist, as long as I remember, since I was a little kid. And I I grew up with a dad in the newspaper industry, and so he was pretty quickly like, oh God, don't do that. That's a terrible career decision, which he wasn't wrong about, right? <laughs> um, but you know, I think like a lot of journalists, if you get bit by the bug, it's hard not to do it, no matter uh, what a poor economic decision it might be. Um, <laughs> so, but I think like a lot of young journalists, as a result of the complicated economic conditions facing the industry and the instability facing the industry, you know, which I saw firsthand growing up. Like there was always, my dad worked at the Seattle Times and there were always sort of questions about whether the paper was gonna have layoffs or whether the paper was gonna survive at all. So I think I was very aware from a young age as to what a precarious industry I was thinking about going into. And that was why like a lot of young journalists, I considered freelancing pretty early. And I think I had a bit of a unique path into freelancing. I studied abroad in Kenya when I was an undergrad and had an amazing experience. I lived in Nairobi, the capital city, really, really loved it, was sort of fascinated by the region and so moved back pretty soon after I graduated from college. And I started out doing, I was a researcher for a little bit. I worked at a nonprofit briefly Very quickly realized that neither the nonprofit world nor academia was for me. And Nairobi is really a hub of foreign correspondents. A lot of people who are covering the Congo and Somalia and South Sudan and other places around the continent live in Nairobi. So I was pretty quickly exposed to foreign correspondents, and a lot of them were freelancers. And, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. Um, It was sort of, again, clear that the more traditional path into journalism wasn't a sustainable one. And so I looked around and saw other people freelancing and I just kind of dove in um and started learning as I went. And yeah, it was not the easiest path into journalism, but I feel really lucky that it was the the one that I was able to take.
0: So it's interesting that you sort of took that path, not to diss, you know, journalism schools, but if you already know that it's going to be a difficult financial situation, perhaps not going in with a bunch of student loans that you're paying off is not necessarily the best way to move forward. So you've got that. Did your father belong to the union by any chance?
1: You know, so he moved from the editorial side of things into the more like tech side of things. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall with where the industry was headed um and realized that editorial jobs were a bit less sustainable. So, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure whether or not his job was part of the union. I should ask him that.
0: Yeah. So when you say he goes into the technical side, about what time was this?
1: So this would have been
0: early 90s? A lot of foresight.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he was basically working on when papers started having a digital product, he was working on merging the sort of like print systems and, and the digital systems. Yeah, which was a smart move to make it. He could stay in the journalism industry.
0: So what brought you back to the United States?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I I lived in East Africa for almost a decade, so I was there for a really long time. And like I said, it was a really exciting place to live. It was a really exciting place to report. I, I got to report on a lot of really thrilling stories, but I also, I think the role of a foreign correspondent is a pretty complicated one. You know, I always sort of felt a bit like an interloper, even though I lived there for a long time and, learned Swahili and, you know, made a lot of efforts to, to not report in a sort of traditional foreign correspondent model. But I really started to feel a call to report on a place that I called home and a place that I knew a bit more intimately. And I mean, it it was also being that far away from family is hard. I was really ready to be a bit closer to them. And also just, you know, like being able to drink tap water and like have sidewalks and like bookstores is first world luxuries are nice. Um, everyone should get to have them. So yeah, I think I just, I was ready to be a bit closer to home. And, and honestly, I sort of, like, I think a lot of Americans abroad started watching the direction the United States was taking and really felt like the health stories that I was reporting on in East Africa, you know, looking at maternal mortality, reporting on authoritarian governments, reporting on poverty and just, like, staggering levels of inequality, I honestly felt like it was equipping me really well to report on my home country of the United
0: States. Yeah, we've had a couple of interviews recently about foreign correspondents who came back to cover the United States, and some of them using, you know, the perspective they had looking at, you know, economic conditions and things like that. And the foreign correspondent thing, and that's long been sort of a romantic ideal of many journalists, but... You are, you know, as you said, an interloper. You're going somewhere to cover a story, not necessarily for the people who live there, but for the people back home. You know, it's a very well made-up version of the much criticized helicopter journalism, which you know is easy to spot in the United States when somebody from CNN shows up to cover protest in your town, but you may not necessarily think about that when you're watching a story from across the world. Anyway, that's me editorializing, I guess. So, you know, how'd you get involved with the Freelance Solidarity Project?
1: I got involved pretty shortly after I moved back to the United States. That was another reason I wanted to move back to the U.S., was to be able to get involved in organizing efforts. And I think I was thrilled when i learned about the national writers union and the freelance solidarity project because as a freelancer i had never been able to be part of a union before and it was always something i really believed in and something i desired to be a part of but hadn't had the opportunity and you know the the freelance solidarity project started when and around like 2019 we really started to see this wave of unionizations across the journalism industry which was incredibly exciting but freelancers were sort of like how can we make sure that freelancers are also benefiting from these exciting gains and how can we make sure that freelancers are supporting staffers in these exciting gains and i think as a freelancer i i remember watching the wave of unionizations and being so thrilled but also realizing that freelancers were we're not only not necessarily going to benefit from that immediately, but freelancers could also be used as a way to tamp down those efforts, right? If uh, if a unionized newsroom goes on strike, freelancers can be used as strike breakers. You know, publications can fire staffers and rely on freelancers with much worse labor conditions. So yeah, as soon as I saw that the Freelance Solidarity Project existed and learned about the work that the National Writers Union had been doing for decades, I knew it was something that I wanted to be a part of.
0: Okay, so you say that you sought it out and that you had an interest in joining a union. What was it about maybe your career or maybe just conceptually in the world of journalism you thought that being unionized would be a good thing?
1: Let's see. I mean, there are, oh gosh, there are just a million great things about being unionized. I think it's the only path for workers to be able to gain significant rights. I think for freelancers, Freelancing can be a deeply isolating way to spend your career. You know, you don't have a newsroom, you don't have colleagues, it can be a pretty lonely existence. And I think it's a lonely existence that's emblematic of a lot of the ways that modern life forces us to live, sort of having this like atomized existence where we're like less in community with other people. And so being in a union. For freelancers in particular, it means you have community. It means you have people who you can talk to, who you can share information with, who you can check. Like, you know, this publication is paying me this much. Am I being exploited? Am I being underpaid? Are they paying other people more? You know, I think just having other people who are in the fight with you is a really, honestly, life changing possibility.
0: You know, I'm a member of a union, I'm a member of SAG after. As a matter of fact, I worked at a website or radio station's website, and I had to become a member because the union took care of our health care. And I still pay dues on it, even though I don't work there, just because I thought it was a good thing to have. And, you know, saw some of the, the benefits of it. How does unionization work in a freelance context? I know that if you go into a place that already has a union, you have the opportunity to become a member. But with freelance, there doesn't seem to be anything connected. You know, what is it that Freelance Solidary Project is doing to help freelancers?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a complicated one because freelancers' right to collectively bargain isn't legally protected in the United States. You know, and that's not just a problem facing freelance journalists. That's a problem facing all precarious workers, you know, so rideshare drivers, food delivery workers, sex workers, like, you know, just so many different people who aren't in more traditional forms of employment. Our organizing can actually be considered collusion and an antitrust violation, which is just one of the many examples of how broken U.S. labor law is. So what that means is that we have to be pretty creative about how we organize. You know, I mean, we believe that all workers deserve a union and should have the right to collectively bargain, hope to be a part of changing that eventually. But in the meantime, yeah, we think about a lot of creative ways to organize. And we also think about the history of unionization. I mean, you know, there have, there have always been unions and organizing long before we had traditional union structures. You know, I mean, there has long been practices like mutual aid, you know, where people in similar conditions are getting together and supporting each other and fighting collectively for, for their rights. So that's sort of like thinking in a a broader philosophical way about what a union is. In more practical terms, we are, Fighting on a bunch of different fronts. One thing that we pursue is legislative change. So we're fighting to pass the Freelance is Free Act, passed it in New York City. We passed a version of it in Illinois, in Columbus, Ohio. We're working on it in Los Angeles and New York State. And that is basically legislation that mandates that freelancers get paid and that they get paid within 30 days. So it helps stop wage theft from freelancers. That seems like an incredibly basic thing, but freelancers getting paid late, not getting paid at all is incredibly common. I'm literally in the middle of a fight trying to get a payment for an article I wrote in December right now. And that's unfortunately not unusual. This kind of legislation will just offer some legal protections for freelancers so that freelancers aren't just kind of doing that on their own.
0: I definitely sympathize with that because, you know, I started as a freelancer and experienced not getting paid for months and months and months, and you're in a really kind of vulnerable position. I mean, that was why it was always, you always hoped you got a contract job, which maybe They would commit to regular payments and there was a regular relationship or even just a full-time job because that way you at least had whatever the structure of the office is to make sure that you got paid in a timely fashion.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, any freelancer just has so many horror stories about getting paid late or not getting paid at all or getting ghosted by editors. It's really pretty appalling. Another way that we organize is we have something called unilateral announcements, which is basically an agreement that we set with publications to lay out basic minimum working standards for freelancers. So we currently have them with The Nation, with The Intercept, with Jewish Currents, with Defector, and a handful of other publications. We're always looking to add more. And those are public announcements. They have that kind of wonky name because we have to get around the antitrust legal issues. And those are publicly posted. So they're available to any freelancers with the publication. Um, we ask that the publication make sure that any freelancers working with them know about it. And these things can set out a variety of terms, including kill fees, you know, so you still get paid some money, even if your article isn't published. It, in some cases, could include pay minimums. It also includes things like copyright. So making sure that freelancers get to re- retain their intellectual property and also things like legal protections for freelancers. So publications often offload legal risk and liability onto freelancers rather than taking it on themselves. And that is just a a way to sort of set these basic minimum standards and have a floor from which to fight from. I, I think one thing we've learned from these is that the basic standards that we're able to set are honestly pretty appalling, but this at least makes them public and makes it clear what working conditions look like for freelancers.
0: Do you require, like in these organizations that you mentioned, do you require that, that they only hire union members of freelancers?
1: No, I think that's an interesting idea and maybe something that we would think about in the future. I think we are still a relatively young union and I think We want to be really careful about thinking about how we're fighting for all freelancers and we hope that all freelancers join the union, but we feel really strongly about fighting for freelancers, whether they're a part of our union or not.
0: Yeah. And many people who who work in shops that have unions do still benefit, even if they aren't members. Anyway. You mentioned that you're a relatively young organization and and that also you see that there's sort of a handful of publications that have committed to this, which to me sounds like a handful of writing opportunities. If I'm a freelancer and a union member, is there an opportunity that I want to write something for Rolling Stone? And let's just say they don't have an agreement with you. I mean, is there a way for me to get the, the union involved in that process? I mean, can I say, hey, I'm a union employee, would you honor this the basic rights that uh, my union is fighting for.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of ways that even when you're writing for other publications, union involvement can help. We also just have like our principles for publications who are working with freelancers, you know, so these are just sort of the things that any publication should strive for. And we absolutely encourage freelancers to share that with their editor share that with management of the publication and say like, Hey, these are the basic things that we expect that I expect as a freelancer. So that is one option. I think another thing that the union is there for is if a publication doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. So if a publication doesn't pay you, if a publication doesn't pay a kill fee, if a publication goes, if you experience discrimination writing, working for that publication, then the union has a grievance process, like all unions, and so the National Writers' Union has a long, a decades long history of recouping stolen money from writers. And so the union can negotiate, mediate on your behalf with the publication. Sometimes it just takes a, you know, strongly worded letter. Sometimes it might take escalating to legal action if there are a large group of freelancers who have been denied payment the National Writers Union has had a lot of success filing group grievances and and getting tens of thousands of dollars in some cases hundreds of thousands recouped for freelance media workers
0: it's complex because the other thing is that, you know, I would think that there are a lot of publications out there that, you know, play the the heartstrings that, you know, well, we're really struggling. You know, this is very difficult times. You know, we can't commit to paying in a timely fashion. We can't afford a, a large number of freelancers. We can't pay them a, a going rate. You know, how do you deal with a situation like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've worked as an editor, too, and it's often really, really difficult I think one thing that is important to remember is that like all of us as workers are being exploited by this same system, you know, and staffers are often in a less precarious position than freelancers are, but staffers and editors are in a deeply precarious situation as well. You know, I mean, we are, all of us journalists are constantly living with the specter of layoffs, you know, like hanging over our shoulder and, In almost all newsrooms have experienced massive cuts, which means that most people are responsible for a job that should be done by six different people. You know, as an editor, you are often wildly overworked and not given the support that you need to support freelancers. So one thing that that we think is really important is that improving working conditions for freelancers also improves working conditions for editors and for editors and staffers who have to work with freelancers. You know, it's a hell of a lot harder to to edit a freelancer who like is getting paid so poorly that, you know, they have to write their article incredibly quickly and, you know, don't have access to the kind of support that they need to do their journalism well and we think that organizing across staff and freelance lines is really really important so we do a lot of work with staff unions because also the reality is as again all of us in the industry know there aren't clear lines between staffers and freelancers like most of us will move between being a staffer being a freelancer being part-time being permolance like it's such a precarious industry that we can't have these divisions otherwise we're we're not going to succeed
0: You know, in my experience in working with the union at the radio station website, I mean, there definitely were some positive things about having a union. You know, I mentioned the health care. You know, they took care of that. They advocated for you if you had issues. But then again, you know, every two or three years, they had to renegotiate the contract. And it was really kind of a fight to get the company to sort of meet the standards. And they would very often try to lower the standard so they're not going to be able to pay something. For example, there had been a law passed that interns had to be paid. If you're having an intern working, which is like, duh, interns should be paid. That actually became a bargaining issue where they said, well, we're going to be required by law to pay the interns. So your choice is, you know, we either pay the interns or, you know, we're not going to be able to do certain new hires. So, we didn't have interns which sucks because you know the intern process is really important
1: yeah i think it's a really important one because it is a, a tactic that is used really frequently in the industry where it's like look this industry is precarious we don't know if a publication is going to survive from one day to another this publication might fold how could we possibly raise freelance rates when We're about to cut 10% of our staff, you know? Or, like, how could we possibly raise freelance rates when we're dealing with this big of a budget deficit? And that argument is used by publications from small, indie, like, you know, three staff publications to the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I think that that makes it clear that it is. Very often, a negotiating tactic to suppress workers' demands for better pay and improved rights, and not an actual reality. You know, I mean, there are people who are making lots and lots of money off of journalism. It is just not the people who are doing the actual journalism. So I think that's important to remember. But I also think it's important to remember that. I think publications just make decisions about how they're going to treat their workers and they make decisions from day one about whether or not they're going to treat them fairly or whether or not they're going to exploit them. You know, I mean, I know a lot of relatively new independent small publications that don't have a lot of money, that don't have a lot of staff, and they just decided from day one that they're going to pay their freelancers fairly because that's just how you should treat the people who create the reason that you exist.
0: I think this is just sort of a big, like, umbrella thing about corporations, not just journalism or media companies, but this idea that we're figures in the math of the success of that organization. And it's all about balancing the books. And sometimes balancing books means you take something from column A so that column B will balance out. And quite often people get laid off, not because of any issues with their their work, it has to do with making sure those numbers meet a certain balance. I've heard from different people, for example, who were laid off at Gannett, who, you know, when the the union was formed, at the end of the day, some people still lost their jobs. But at least they had, you know, there was a severance, there was a process that they may not have had before. It's almost like insurance. You you don't, you don't want to have it, but you don't necessarily want to use it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that now with BuzzFeed News being closed, you know, and that union is the reason that a lot of people got severance packages at all. And that union is also still fighting because BuzzFeed has said that they're not going to treat everyone the same in terms of who gets a good severance package and who doesn't. And even though BuzzFeed News is now gone the union is still fighting tooth and nail to make sure that their workers are protected.
0: Yeah, it's 2023 and you know, I think there've been a lot of people in the last, you know, 5 years or so certainly who as they're turning to unions as a way to sort of address these, you know, what they recognize as poor working conditions, poor pay, healthcare, benefits, etc. And I think that has to do partly because the working sector of our country has been sort of victimized. There haven't been as many protections, and protections have been taken away from them. So anyway, now you mentioned that part of what the National Writers' Union and the Freelance Solidarity Project is doing is trying to, I guess, change legislation or to turn things around. You know, What is the nature of that?
1: So most of that right now is focusing on trying to get the Freelancers Isn't Free Act passed in jurisdictions across the country, which helps stop wage theft from freelancers. And yeah, it ensures that freelancers get paid and that they get paid on time, which again is, sounds pretty basic, but but is isn't something that a lot of freelancers experience. We've also done work in the past on trying to get the Pro Act passed to the protecting right to organize. You know, I think something that we see as really important about our organizing. And I think, I think something that journalists are beginning to wake up to, but I think as an industry, we've been a little sluggish to recognize is that the things that are happening to us are not unique to journalism. You know, if precarity has not already come for your industry, it's coming for your industry, relying on contingent workers and non-staff workers is a, Great way for companies across all sectors to ensure that executives make more money and workers make less, and that workers aren't able to, that workers are atomized and not able to organize to fight for better rights. You know, so we really see our fight as being in coalition with the fight of rideshare drivers and food delivery workers and agricultural workers and, you know, all of these workers who have a much longer history than ours of organizing for protections for precarious workers. And so things like passing the Protecting the Right to Organize Act is something that will make that fight a lot more powerful.
0: Abigail, this has been a great conversation. I learned a lot about this. How can people, you know, if somebody's a freelancer and they want to find out more about your organization or they want to they want to unionize, what should they do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you are a freelancer and it is you know, despite the National Writers' Union being our parent union, it is not just for writers. We are a union of podcasters, photographers, cartoonists, producers, anyone who is part of making media happen belongs in our union. So if you are a freelancer, you should join. We want to organize with you. So you can go to FreelanceSolidarity.org to learn more about the Freelance Solidarity Project and the National Writers' Union. and you know, you can follow us on Twitter. Our email address is on the website, so you can drop us a line. And yeah, you can join via the National Writers Union website. We would love to have you and we would love to talk with you.
0: I always realize when I ask that question, it's like most people are going to Google this (laughs) at the end of the day. But I think it's important to show that you've got a place where people can go. And especially if they're just looking for some answers, some questions. Is this right for me? How much is it going to cost? How difficult is it going to be at the end of the day? You know, how am I going to be benefited by it? Abigail, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bilefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.